0: Welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit, a series of 15 podcasts that present different aspects of a vegan lifestyle from some of the most prominent thought leaders in veganism. Perhaps you want to learn how to be a better advocate for animals. Maybe you want to feel confident about raising your family on a plant based diet. Proudly sponsored by VegFund, the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit's for you. Hello and welcome to the One Bite Vegan Food for Thought Summit. I'm your host, Emma Leticia, and in this episode we're talking to activists for social and environmental justice, author and vegan permaculture Graham Burnett. Graham has regularly co-organized and taught permaculture workshops and courses for over 20 years, and as well as cultivating his own garden and plots, he is actively involved with his local community, setting up a number of community gardens and projects. He founded Spiral Seed in 2001 and has written The Vegan Book of Permaculture. And we're going to talk a little bit with him now about what exactly permaculture is and how it can incorporate and promote veganism. Hi, Graham. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, uh, thank you for inviting me.
0: (laughs) Cool. So for those who are listening that may be new to permaculture, can you give us a brief overview of what it is?
1: Well, I guess permaculture is one of those words that is applied common sense, really, but it can quite be quite difficult to kind of pin down with a, uh, a definition. It was once said that if you got a hundred permaculturists in a room together and asked them to define permaculture, you'd get a hundred different definitions. But the one I kind of like is designing human communities by following nature's patterns. Hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's nice.
1: I'm uh, not sure how helpful that is. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> no, well, I, I think it's, uh, I've, be, t- I've been asked that question before as well and I've been like, oh, and for me, I think permaculture is a lot of observation, isn't it, really, before <laughs> before mm, you definitely. take action. Definitely. Yeah.
1: Definitely, yeah. It's about applied, applied observation and coming to understand kind of a landscape. I mean, that might be a, a physical landscape, like a woodland or a farm or something like that. It might be the social landscape, you know, the local community, how that kind of functions, who are the various players, what's kind of working well, what are the dysfunctions, and kind of trying to understand those functions for observation before we kind of act or take action, if that, if that makes sense. Mm.
0: And that explanation, I think, sums up why you, why you said it. You know, for every different permaculturist, there's going to be a different definition. It depends really on what their environment is.
1: Definitely. In fact, the standard answer to almost any question that's asked for kind of a permaculture designer is it depends because every landscape is different. Every community is different. Every garden is different. So there's no kind of rules or set of techniques or um, answers that are going to work in every situation. A strategy that might work in um, my back garden, for example, might be completely inappropriate for a garden, you know, just a mile down the road for variations, climate, different needs of the people. It's not about cut and dried answers to things. It's about a more of a kind of thinking framework around patterns that engage and understand nature. And I suppose one of the central questions in permaculture would be um, how would nature solve this problem? And I guess if we can kind of start to think like that, then we can start to develop our own solutions.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Now, the permaculture ethics, I think, are really inspiring, and they also line mm-hmm. up quite well with the ethics of a vegan lifestyle. Can you give us a brief overview of what those three fundamental ideas are?
1: Yeah, the kind of core is, I suppose, that's at the heart of any kind of permaculture design, and they would be um, earth care, that our project or the thing we're undertaking is caring for the earth, the living things as we share this earth with, the plants, the fungi, the bacteria, the animals, but also come kind of the earth itself, the soil, the oceans. So there's earth care, caring for the earth. And then we have people care, which is all about understanding that we are a part of the earth, not apart from the earth. And so it's about Meeting our needs as human beings on this planet, but without not only not depleting the resources of the planet, but also caring for each other and ensuring that not only our basic needs are met, so sort of, you know our, our right to food, shelter, air, and water, but also those kind of high-end level needs around kind of esteem, respect, being part of a community being in a good relationship with other people and kind of fulfill one's whole potential as a human being. So a lot of the people care stuff could be about kind of community work, but also a lot around kind of self-care, making sure we're looking after our own needs. And the last ethic, as it were, is sometimes framed as fair shares or um, kind of living within our resources and living on the planet in ways that aren't exploitative or extractive. So in a way, so sort of earth care is about caring for the planet, people care is about caring for people, and fair share is really about how do we actually reconcile those two things, earth care and people care, in a way that's kinda of non exploitative. And I guess that's all about, you know, distribution of wealth, ensuring that everyone has a right to kind of education, ensuring that people have a right to kind of basic needs. Yeah, and This yeah, it is about having that kind of central set of ethics and values that underpin all of our um, activities.
0: Mm, Yeah, in this day and age, I think that those, being mindful of those things is so important. Now, I've also heard You say that you love permaculture because it gives you the opportunity to be for something as opposed to being against something all the time. And I know that's Mm -hmm. something that a lot of burnt-out vegan activists could relate to, you know, if you're always out there fighting, fighting, fighting. So how did you find out Mm -hmm. about permaculture and get started?
1: For me personally, I very much came from that background, from kind of um, animal rights and social justice activism, for about. Well, basically since I left school, really, and became uh, very involved in kind of radical politics, protest, direct action, all that kind of thing. And as you quite rightly said, there comes a time when you can start to feel burnout or feel that you're no longer kind of nurturing or sustaining oneself in the face of those struggles. I think I was reaching that point. And it was about that time I came across a book by a guy called Graham Bell called The Permaculture Garden and we had an allotment for growing sorts of food and stuff like that and so I thought, oh, this book, you know, it might have some kind of handy gardening tips in it. So I bought a copy and took it home and read it um, and although I did have sort of gardening tips in it, it was quite interesting in that respect. The most valuable thing about that book for me is it was a real kind of switch in my way of thinking because so it was all about kind of solutions thinking. So it switched me from a place of what am I against, always kind of fighting against them, whoever they are, and uh, mm-hmm. thinking about well, what are the things that, you know, I value, what are things I want to achieve, and that led me to do an introduction to permaculture course, and then a um, the full permaculture design course, and that kind of introduced me to lots of projects in London where people were doing community gardens, they were setting up alternative economic systems, they were taking, uh, you know, taking disused, repurposing disused buildings and turning them into community centres. Just so many fantastic projects that people were putting into action that were kind of positive solutions focused rather than uh, constantly kicking a back against those things I don't, didn't want. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you are a vegan permaculture practitioner. How does this differ Mm -hmm. from permaculture in the conventional sense?
1: I don't think there is a huge amount of difference, really. Um, For me, permaculture is quite an open-source set of ideas. I mean, there were the original books that were written by Bill Morrison and David Holmgren, and there can be a tendency from some people to treat those as kind of almost like biblical scriptures that you don't deviate from. But I saw their work and the work of other permaculture people as being very open source. You know, we can take the source code, we can adapt it, we can use it in ways that make sense to us, we can change it, we can tweak it. And so I see almost like, you know, as you get in kind of software, open source software, you can kind of have different forks or it goes in different directions. And that's how I see like the vegan fork, if you like, or the vegan branch of permaculture, like vegan permaculture. It's just taking those ethics, principles, design, strategies, and processes and thinking, well, how can we apply these? I mean, I think the idea that you can have a system with no animals in it is obviously a fallacy because there'll always be animals there. There'll be the earthworms, there'll be birds, there'll be uh, various organisms that are kind of passing through our system and doing work. I guess in permaculture is about trying to exclude those animals that are in an exploitative relationship. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, if we can kind of, so if we can kind of welcome in what I might call like self-willed animals, those things that will come through our system, be kind of providing services for us, if you like, just through their own natural, uh, meeting their own natural needs, but they're kind of providing services for us as well in terms of building soil, pollinating our plants, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it's really just about excluding the exploitative side of the relationships with animals. And one of the other an interesting thing, you know, I've often heard the argument put forward, well, you need animals in the system to um, do, you know, otherwise then we have to do work within the system that the animal was doing otherwise. And I've had that argument put to me and then it's those same people are saying to me, or you see them on social media complaining, Oh, I, I, get, I have to get up at four in the morning to go and take the goat out. And then I haven't had a holiday for three years. So I need to be there to look after chickens. And now oh, all the uh, sheep escapes, and they all ran down the road and I had to gather them up. And I said, Well, what was that about? You know, minimizing work in the system. Hmm. So that, that was just like something that kind of made me, uh, you know, the irony of that kind
0: of thing. Yeah. It can get quite ridiculous sometimes. I know I've seen all the the different arguments going backwards and forwards as well online. Mm. But I know there are quite a few vegan permaculture farms that have also incorporated farmed animal sanctuaries into their design. Mm -hmm. I believe that Wild Uh Earth Farm in Kentucky is a great example of that and you you teach courses at Wild Earth. Can you tell us a little Uh bit about how their, their farm is set up?
1: Um, it is quite a new project. It's only been, I think, 2015, so it's very much in the early days, and permaculture is all about kind of slow, organic growth and development. But basically, they have 200 acres, I believe it is, in um, Kentucky, as you said, and at the heart of that, they have, like, obviously, the, uh, the dwellings of the people who live there are there. Um, but they're sort of developing the land around there. And they're doing it in kind of quite a slow way. They're not kind of rushing into this. So they've set up some areas. They've got some rehomed ducks and things that are living there. They have some pigs. They have various dogs and things like that that just seem to find their way there. Um <laughs> And I think in the longer term, you know, they have there's an awful lot of land there, but I think they're still in the stages of actually figuring out, you know, how exactly they're gonna develop this. And I think that is part of permaculture thinking as well. You know, you don't kinda of rush into this and make decisions that you may regret later. It's just to see how things will organically evolve. So there there are quite a few animals there already, it's um certainly not used its full potential at the moment. A lot of the site is actually woodland. So I guess, you know, the thinking is how do we incorporate woodland into um, kind of an animal sanctuary uh, situation. And there's also quite a lot of some quite large field areas. So I think it's just seeing how things are going to evolve over the next few years, really. And the permaculture thinking has really fed into that. We've run, I think, three courses over there now with myself and William Faith who's a permaculture teacher based in Chicago and there's Joe and Heather who live at the farm and Anna, various other people who are are there. And permaculture courses always feed into the design process. It's always interesting to see, you know, what's changed every time I go there. I don't go there that often but every time I do go there you see things kind of moved on and changed and adapted and that's always interesting, you know, just seeing how those are the incremental
0: tweaks. Mm. Yeah, because living in a, in a property and doing the observation, you know, from year to year, you, you notice so many different things and you think, oh, how did I never mm. notice that before? It's a really fascinating way to mm-hmm. to design something. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about permaculture where people think you need to purchase a huge block of land to do it, you know, like 200 Mm, mm. acres is a huge amount of land. But you've worked Mm. on urban projects. Can you describe for us how the basic concepts of permaculture operate in an urban setting?
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting um, tools you can use in permaculture is a thing called designing by zone and sector. So that would be looking at, properties of different sizes so it would go from like zone one will be the kind of immediate back garden really out to kind of zone four which is much more those kind of broad scale properties talking about you know the 200 acre sites, there's lots lots of land to play around with i guess in the urban situation a lot of the focus is very much around the kind of more the kind of zone one sort Mm -hmm. of thinking you know things you can do in your own back garden or um you know immediately adjacent to your property but there's also thinking about you know there's a lot of kind of little niches in community in the urban landscape that you know have pieces of land that have been abandoned just this morning actually i've been down at a local project where we're developing like a wildlife garden just for some land that was previously derelict and people were you know dumping rubbish on it and things like that and we're repurposing that there's another project i'm working on which is the backyard of a um local homeless shelter that we're turning into like a uh, community garden to grow, you know, vegetables and fruit and other produce. Uh, you know, people who are living in that property, which tends to be kind of obviously quite a transient population, as it say, you know, so that's got its own, uh, its own challenges. But that's all really, you know, it's not really so much about food we're growing. It's more about the kind of reskilling people and giving people confidence and getting people out of the place they're in at the moment in their lives into hopefully a a better place by, you know, finding tasks that give people, you know, more kind of meaning or teaching people skills, life skills, that other ways, have, or people are learning kind of potential employment skills. So there's all those, that side, you know, comes made more into the people care side of permaculture, but it's all interconnected, I think.
0: Mm. I've also seen people talk about a zone zero as well, which kind of goes back to what you were talking about, you know, It could be mindfulness, it could be the thoughts that Mm -hmm. you're thinking, it could be your own self-care. So those sorts of Mm -hmm. things could definitely come into play in an urban setting. And even if you've got only a window window box to play with, Mm -hmm. that's kind of enough to, to start doing something, isn't it? If you're living in an apartment.
1: Absolutely. Mm, Absolutely. Um, And just, you know, just having just a little window box where you can, you know, obviously you're not going to be growing uh, all of your food from a window box. It's just something there about kind of reconnecting with nature. There's just something there about, you know, just sowing a few seeds, starting to grow some plants. And I think it can also have, you know, it has the effect of inspiring other people. The story I particularly like telling is... A Friend of mine, when I first got involved with permaculture and those sort of things, a friend of mine in um, South London who lived on a estate that had a lot of a very deprived estate that had a lot of, kind of social problems like around poverty and lack of food and crime and antisocial behaviour. She just started up, you know, growing some sort of flowers and things like that, just in a little window box outside of her house. And that inspired her neighbours to start planting, you know, little window boxes of plants. And then people would put little containers of herbs out in their front gardens. And this had the effect of, um, it would get people talking. So people were then having conversations and thinking about how can we improve our area. And lots of projects came from that. They started off like a um, food box, vegetable box delivery system they uh started up a, like a, a locally shaped trading system like an alternative economic system you know to start trading their veg and um, they started up a bicycle box delivery scheme to deliver the veg they took out local allotments to start growing produce to feed into the scheme and in the end it became a really kind of big project that sort of started providing employment for people and training opportunities and youth activities. And, in fact, that's how I came to do my first permaculture teaching was through a course this friend of mine had set up and had got funding for, so it gave me an opportunity to start teaching permaculture. So that little window box of um, herbs or flowers can have a grow. you know, it's like the, uh, the acorn that can grow into the mighty oak. You never quite know where things are going to lead. And that's one of the things that excites me about permaculture, I think.
0: That's a fantastic story. And I guess the moral is, don't underestimate the power of a window
1: box. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Definitely.
0: Cool. And we're, all, we're living in uncertain times now. In your opinion, what is it about permaculture that's giving so many people hope for the future?
1: I think it, it refers to what I was talking about earlier. It's so much about solutions-based thinking. Indeed, we do live in a you know, very uncertain times at the moment. Nobody quite knows how things are going to play out with some of the politics that's going on, sort of the uh, climate change and all this kind of thing. So it's very uncertain times. I think it's also something about the narrative that we choose to uh, you know, buy into, if you like. So there's a, there's a kind of very much a doom and gloom narrative of mainstream media. But there's this other kind of narrative we can build for ourselves, I think, or create our own stories. You know, the story I just talked about, about the window box that grew into, a, you know, almost like a social movement. And there's lots of these little things that are happening all over the place, I think. You know, projects that people, where people just come together and set stuff up not waiting for permission or waiting for like, the authorities or the government or, you know, the, the local council or to kind of give you permission or fund you or say, yes, it's okay to do that. It's just people coming together, finding their own solutions and creating their own new stories of um, how the world could be and making that world, you know, bring that world into being through activities like permaculture and some of the other things, you know, like, biomimicry, all these other things that are around, you know, they're not strictly permaculture, but they're all, you know, what I call complementary uh, philosophies, I guess. So, mm. although, you know, it's um, strange times, as they say, they're also, you know, I still have, you know, a lot of hope, actually, and think that, you know, people will prevail, I think, in the, in the long run. Mm.
0: Well, that, that's nice to hear. And, yeah, exactly, you can uh, choose your source of media these days. I mean, we've got so many options, Mm. so Mm. let's tune out all the negative stuff and let's focus on the positive for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not,
1: you know, it's not pretending it's not there, but it's like, you know, how do we respond to that? I think, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah, exactly. Maggie Harlan from permaculture magazine. She asked you to write the vegan book of permaculture and uh, mm-hmm. I own a copy. I love it. I love all the seasonal recipes that you've included in there. So you can go about growing your own produce and then you, you can flick through. And there's some really mm-hmm. delicious recipes in there. And it's a great, great resource for anyone starting out. Can you give us an overview of what the book covers?
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, she actually asked me to write a vegan recipe book originally, and it kind of evolved into something, uh, a little bit more substantial, I think, over quite a long period. But yeah, I tried to, um, I mentioned the whole thing around zones that are like a tool that are used in permaculture thinking. So I tried to structure it in a way that reflected zones in that it starts from, as you said, like the zone zero, like about the individual and self care and uh, you know some potential practices that might you know help one to yeah be be a more effective person in the world and having that awareness of looking after yourself through to things like looking after your diet, so there's a little section in there about you know sort of meeting nutritional needs through a plant based diet that kind of thing. And then the next section was about, like, looking at the home itself, your immediate environment around you, how you might kind of maybe um, grow food. You know, there's potential for growing food in your kitchen, you know, sprouting beans, doing fermentation, making sauerkraut, kimchi, all those kind of things. So all that stuff around, you know, permaculture in the home. And then I looked at sort of more the garden, you know, how you might actually design your own garden to be more – Kind of um productive in terms of vegetables, fruit, stuff like that, and then you know there's a section there like about vegan organic or veganic gardening, you know growing the. I kind of kept it with the fairly what you might call the standard crops that people might be familiar with, so I was just thinking people are very new to gardening or vegan vegan organic gardening, you know just bit stuff that people might you know be familiar with and have success with, and then moving out more to thinking about production on a bigger scale, you know, how growing grain crops and those kind of staples and our main carbohydrate crops and things like that, how we might be thinking about that. But then the next section of the book is more the zone four, which would be more the kind of the broad scale thinking, where we're looking at growing more, maybe moving more in the future. we will be looking much more towards tree crops to uh, meet our needs, or much more nuts, high-protein uh, nuts and grains and things like that that can be produced from, more from perennial plants, which is more looking at what the future of agriculture through grain may look like. Mm. And then the last part of the book is sort of looking more of the community, you know, bringing it back to the people side of things, but more on the community scale, sort of how, you know, community projects have been successful, what's made them successful, and, you know, maybe a few recipes for like human connection i guess that was the intent of the book and hopefully you know and i also tried to write in a way that's not you know as you mentioned at, at the start of this interview uh, there can be these you know big kind of raging arguments between vegans and non-vegans and this kind of name calling and being a little bit you know unproductive i, I kind of try to avoid writing in that way so for, for that very reason you know to be kind of non i'd rather focus on our um common ground and the things that are our differences I guess so and I tried to build a sense of that in the way I, I wrote the book so
0: no so hopefully a, that's
1: a little overview
0: <laughs> no I, it's a fantastic book and I even we had some people come and stay on our farm and they were Italian and it was in Italian and I was I was like wow that's really cool it's translated so
1: There is indeed, yes.
0: Yeah, what languages is it available in? Do you know?
1: I think, as far as I know, it's only uh, only Italian and English at the moment. But I think a couple of people um, have uh, have inquired, so who knows? Hopefully, uh, you know, there'll be French and all sorts of languages.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic. And what? For anyone listening that's interested in getting Graham's book, we'll have links to where you can get that. Okay, so to wrap up, what advice do you have for anyone that's interested in learning more about vegan permaculture?
1: I think it's obviously, you know, there's my book and there's other websites. There's the Vegan Organic Network who have um, a lot of resources and there's a few other, you know, vegan practitioners that one can learn from. In the United States, there's Helen Assow and Will Bonsall and a bunch of other people. In the UK, we have um, people like Ian Tolhurst and uh, Brookend Garden, where I um, run regular courses as well. So there's all those kind of resources where you can find out information. But I think my kind of key piece of advice really is just do it, really. Just kind of go out there and do it. You might, you know, you might get it wrong. You might make mistakes. But that's great because it's through making mistakes that you kind of learn and develop and, yeah, so just go and do it and try it. If it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, try something else, and that's that's the only way, I believe.
0: Yeah, fantastic advice. And on that note, that brings us to the end of the episode. Graham. thank you so much for talking with us and helping us to learn more about permaculture. Thank you. <laughs> if this podcast has uh, (laughs) my pleasure if this podcast has inspired you and you'd like to learn more about graham's work or find out where to order the vegan book of permaculture and further information on graham's upcoming courses please click on his bio link in today's email you'll find details on his website plus links to his social media accounts too Finally, thank you so much for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Remember, One Bite is all it takes to make a change. Thank you for listening and being part of the One Bite Vegan Summit. Be sure to keep up to date with the latest One Bite Vegan online events and free resources, including the One Bite Vegan blog and digital magazine, by connecting with us via our website, onebitevegan.com. Remember, One Bite is all it takes to make a change.